Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Gender dominates headlines. From Me Too to gender identity itself, the zeitgeist has never been more amenable to shattering stereotypes and correcting wrongs. Yet these efforts are largely focused on the workplace, politics, education, and the media. Healthcare remains stuck in the past. Our guest today says that this is a potentially dangerous oversight. Asha George is an award-winning researcher on health systems. She has worked with UNICEF, the World Health Organization, and USAID. She is currently at the University of the Western Cape, where she is the South Africa Research Chair of Health Systems. Hi, Asha. It's Elmira. Can you hear me? Miss George joins me from Cape Town via Skype to discuss the intersection of gender and health and the consequences of not taking gender seriously in health research. Okay, so we'll just kick off. And my first question to you is, why is gender important to health? And what are some of the key ways that we misunderstand the relationship? And what are some of the consequences of such misunderstanding? So gender, one, it's a feature that affects everyone's life. Everyone's born with a sex And the science around that is changing, and the understanding is changing. There's a minority group of people who are born intersex. After that, we get bombarded with messages, and we become gendered beings. And that is not just a matter of identity. It also leads to inequality. And that inequality over your lifetime, in different ways, shapes your access to health, Once you're in a health center, how people respond to you, it determines your health behaviors, uh, your, your status in life, and that all has implications for health. So it is one of the most powerful determinants of health. You just spoke about inequality, and healthcare, I think like many professions, has, has this gross gender imbalance. And you see it where women feel a majority of the positions in areas such as nursing, while you see a lot of men dominate senior positions, including doctors and heads of hospital. How does this affect health outcomes? People make these assumptions that because there are so many women in the health workforce, women are more nurturing, but if they're underpaid and stressed, there's a lot of chronic stress in the health workforce, and also working in situations with very poor supplies. They don't have all the equipment. They're in facilities that are overcrowded, and they have no power to change that because they're at the bottom of the health workforce. That leads to very poor healthcare outcomes. You were asking earlier, you know, what are some of our assumptions and, and things that, d- that don't work the way we think they do? When women are put in such a difficult circumstance, they replicate the same sort of uh, discriminatory norms. They're not angels in that sense. And yet a lot of, at the flip end of it, there are women in the health workforce who are incredibly resourceful. That's not to deny their ability to affect change. And there have been initiatives that really work with Um, across different um, types of health workers to build alliances to affect change that improves healthcare. 
in many parts of the world, gender inequalities are very clearly, you just look outside your window and you can see them. For instance, on a road in India, who has access to transport and who doesn't? Who's walking and who's riding the bicycle? Um, it can be very graphic, the, the inequalities that you see. But when it comes to healthcare, that inequality isn't always apparent. And it's not to say that men aren't affected. If you look at advertising around the world, they play on a lot of gender stereotypes. And it's a huge thing here, the sports industry here in South Africa, the amount of funding they have in advertising alcohol. We have one of the highest accident death, death rates from road traffic accidents. And a lot of the deaths from road traffic accidents are caused by drinking and driving. And so men are also affected by the way in which gender stereotypes are promoted. I want to pick up, I'm glad that you actually have taken us to India and, and to South Africa. A lot of your work has focused on India and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and you just noted that they're, you know, with the billboards and the masculine stereotypes but there's also an issue where women's access to health services is limited for a number of reasons. One is physical proximity to medical care. Getting to a clinic, a hospital, or a doctor's office, it, you know, it can be difficult. Another issue that is that many women don't know their rights. And even when they do, in countries like India, and we see this throughout the Middle East, they often can't make decisions independently. What can be done to address these problems? Well, there's, there are many women's collectives that are working on this. It's not teaching someone, but it's the, in the small group discussions that have been set up. And in those discussion groups, people begin to realize this is the ethos of a lot of women's empowerment work all over. Um, the Boston Women's Health Collective started on this principle that a big factor of gender inequality is that, as you said, women themselves think their experiences of discrimination are unique, that they're isolating. And they are isolating. And you, you, because of something that's happened to you, you think it's only happened to you. And it's not until you've had a chance to talk to other women, you realize sometimes this is a common problem. And that conversation can be incredibly, if it's facilitated well, can be incredibly empowering. Health norms are largely set by the West, either through Western universities, the World Health Organization, or bodies like the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. How does that affect healthcare and health equity in places like Sub-Saharan Africa and India? Well, I think in, in public health, there have been, while I agree that a lot of resources and funding comes from the West, I wouldn't agree that all norms or standards are set in the West. There's a lot of solidarity around the principles of primary health care. And if you look at, uh, for instance, the, the NHS, the National Health System in the UK, it's founded on the principles of primary health care. There were many people across many countries that went to Alma-Ada in the 1970s and there were, so these standards on primary health care are international, but they're based in you know, national experiences of health care and affirming health rights 
that have developed over time, but I wouldn't say that they're Western. They really have been people from India, Tanzania, who were part of those um, conversations in, in affirming primary health care, and at that time worked with WHO to set that standard. And that role is really important. Um, I think WHO, while it does have a lot of funding from donors in, in the West, one of the things I really value about WHO, it is um, through its constitution and its governance functions, it has to have representation from um, low and middle income countries. And I think that's also part of, there's a consciousness that's emerging that you need to have more balance. Uh, I wouldn't say all of global health has that same ethos as through which primary health care has been affirmed. I think now you can easily go to a global health conference and think that it is mostly um, people from the West who have the ideas and the solutions because they're the only people speaking on the plenaries. Um, but there is a consciousness increasingly that there needs to be people from low and middle income countries, experts, people in the ministries of health, academics who need to be part of the table. And I think that's part of the larger conversation on um, universal health coverage, on strengthening health systems. Just like in the women's health movement, there's been a recognition that women's access to healthcare needs to improve, but that has to be done in partnership with um, communities, families, communities, men, health providers. It, it can't be done by women alone. What role should governments play in improving health equity, and which policies should they pursue to yield better health outcomes for all? Governments play a really vital role. I think of digital health. I mean, that's an area that is exploding uh, in importance, and it is, it's absolutely vital that we engage with how digital technologies are changing the healthcare sector. But it is also one in which the conversations are easily skewed. We assume, I think in our excitement, around it because they're so alluring. And also, we've adopted these technologies wholesale. We have a phone, we have a tablet, we've normalized our proximity to these technologies. And therefore, we, I, I think in health, people are more suspicious, for instance, of pharma, of, um, sorry, that's slang for um, pharmaceutical companies, than um, necessarily digital technology. And my caution is not because I'm against technology. I think this is a really exciting innovation and it has huge potential for the healthcare sector. But it's almost we get so carried away with the technology, we forget the foundations that also need to be there. And you need to still have health workers that are trained who can use the technology you need to have women who have phones who understand how, like, uh, not just have access to the phone, but actually use it. And it's striking that some of the surveys we're doing, uh, you know, once you try and understand what digital literacy means, people might have the phone, but they can't actually open the SMS message or really interact in, in a way that 
there that really makes it useful in terms of accessing health information. So I think in, in this conversation, government is absolutely crucial because it does need to be there to set standards. Otherwise, you do have technologies that are developed that don't necessarily meet the needs of the majority population. It'll meet the needs of those who can afford the technology. And therefore, government needs to be there to really set standards to make sure that the technologies talk to one another, for instance. That there's in, that's this complicated word, interoperability, that, that the systems communicate with one another so that data stored or software in one app can actually link with databases or other types of technology elsewhere, that they're not sort of boutique one-off technologies that don't connect with the broader system. Asha, I want to take a practical example to better understand the relationship between gender and health. Women's increased exposure to Ebola can be attributed to time spent at home caring for the sick. In 2014, women made up 60% of cases, and the rate of infection was traced to household contacts. That suggests that cultural norms played an important role in the spread of the virus. How should healthcare providers respond? I think that was a... Excellent example of how healthcare workers need to understand the cultures that they work in and the initial response by a lot of donors in the West. You had said earlier that, you know, norms and are from the West and exported elsewhere, and I had said, no, that's not always the case. This is one example where initial solutions didn't take into consideration what was happening in households and in communities. And it wasn't until the response recognized cultural norms, uh, not just women's uh, exposure by looking after the sick, but in particular rituals around um, burying the dead. And until we understood what was happening and developed ways of regaining the trust of communities and women, the Ebola response really wasn't very effective. And, you know, trust is a very, it's, it's an area of emerging uh, understanding in, in health systems research. It might not sound as something very concrete. Healthcare is about vaccines, about medicines, drugs, but actually what holds it all together is trust. If you don't trust a health worker, you're not going to go see that health worker, even if you have a very infectious disease. And it's the same thing once women have been treated badly by a healthcare facility, they, won't, they don't necessarily want to go back for um, antenatal care or delivery. And so trust is absolutely vital. In, and you saw that in Ebola, and you see it across health systems in the world. And it has a very gendered feel to it as well. Asha, we end each episode asking our guests this question. What gives you hope? People give me hope. I know that sounds very um, simplistic, but it's incredible the creativity and the agency and initiative you see when you visit 
um, healthcare centers in sometimes very uh, difficult circumstances. I've, I've traveled in Ethiopia to very rural areas and you see people with a lot of pride in what they're doing and coming up with ingenious solutions. And I think it's absolutely vital that we learn to listen more humbly at their understanding where they're coming from, but also taking on board their energy and enthusiasm. They often have you know, ideas that are really important and insights that we coming from the outside easily miss. And that engagement is always amazing in terms of understanding the, the excitement and enthusiasm people have once they feel they can be part of changing their own circumstances. Asha, thank you. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Asha George is at the University of the Western Cape, where she is the South Africa Research Chair of Health Systems. And that's it for this episode of Opinion Has It. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Donna.